Yeah, I call that the divorce paradox. You know, in the worst, most traumatic time of your life, you have to make the most critical decisions of your life about the things that mean the most to you, your children, your money, your business, your home, all of those things. And so I would say, um, you know, that's actually the E part of my thing, which is, you know, keep your emotions out of it. Um, and by doing, I mean, I, I think a lot of the emotions, though, in any kind of a negotiation is the, the unknown factor. Hi, I'm Nick Ninton, and welcome to Now to Next, the podcast where I interview some of the top experts and professionals all across the globe to talk about what's happening now and what you can expect next. Thanks for tuning in to Now to Next. Make sure you like and subscribe and check out the next episodes. Hey everyone, Nick Danton here, back for another episode of Now to Next. I've been on the road a ton the last few weeks, so I haven't been able to give you uh, a live show for a while, but I got a great one to come back with from the moment uh, I met Rebecca. I said, you got to come back on and we will uh, we'll get this show back and cranking. And so uh, I'm going to give you a brief uh, bio of uh, my guest here, Rebecca Zung, and, uh, and then we'll get right to it. So here's what I've got. Rebecca Zung is a leading authority on negotiation and on family law. As a a partner in the law firm of Long, Murphy & Zung. She is in the top 1% of attorneys in the U.S. and has been recognized by U.S. News & World Reports as a best lawyer in America and as legal elite by Trend Magazine. She has received the highest possible rating by Martindale Hubble, recognized by her peers and the judiciary as AVC, a preeminent rated lawyer in family law. And as an attorney myself, those are tough ratings to get. So those are great. Um, but her journey wasn't easy and took her from divorced, single mom, and college dropout to one of the most powerful lawyers in the country. Now she empowers others to live at their optimum level of success. Rebecca is the author of the best-selling books, Breaking Free, a step-by-step -step divorce guide for achieving emotional, physical, and spiritual freedom, and her latest, Negotiate Like You Matter, the surefire method to step up and win. Rebecca has been featured in Forbes, Huffington Post, Newsweek Time, and on Extra, NPR, Good Day New York, and CBS Los Angeles. She is also the host of the popular show, Negotiate Your Best Life which is available on YouTube and as a top podcast. I highly recommend after you listen to mine, you go listen to hers. And uh, we're, we're glad to have you today. Uh, Rebecca, how are you doing today? I'm great. Thank you. Thank you so much. This is a, a fun topic. So you and I were uh, introduced by a mutual friend uh, a few weeks ago, and we got to talking. And one of the things that really fascinated me, so I might as well dig in with it, uh, you talk a lot about negotiating with a narcissist. And I don't know if it's the social media-driven time we live in now where maybe it breeds more narcissism, maybe it breeds more public narcissism, but we're all dealing with some level of narcissism on a daily basis. And I think, first of all, most people don't understand what that is. Um, there is, uh, I would say there's probably uh, uh, socially diagnosed narcissism and there's actually medically diagnosed narcissism as well. But let's dig in a little bit to what, what does it look like? Because um, obviously when you're working with a narcissist, whether on the same team or when things start to shift, it feels like a totally different, experience in working with people who think on a balanced frame. So tell share a little bit with us about, you know, about what narcissism is and, and what it's, I guess it, it must have some positive effects, but what some of the negative effects are as well. So let's start there. Okay. Yeah. That's, there's so much to that question, frankly, it's like, you know, I could just sort of, uh, extemporaneously go off on that for like the next 30 minutes, but I won't. Um, but basically it is, it, it's a person who experienced some kind of issue in their childhood, which caused them to believe that the world is a scary place. It's a survival. It's a place of survival. They have a very, very fragile sense of self. And so they look to the external world to try to make themselves feel better in, in many different ways, you know, either a constant adulation or attaching themselves to people or things that they think are prestigious. You know, they're always looking for ways to feed that external, that, that, that beast externally. And they, they call that narcissistic supply. And if they can't get it through adulation and that sort of thing, then they're going to get it through devaluing others, controlling others, making others, you know, feel like less than them, because then that 
boost their ego. And then, you know, what happens is it manifests in a person who has no sense of care, compassion, or empathy for others. They just can't because it's a survival world for them. You know, if, if somebody else has something, then they don't have it. And they just, they can't have that, you know? So it's, it's scarcity mentality to the extreme. Uh, that's a great way to simplify it. Cause again, I know these are, these are not simple concepts. These are complex ideas. And, you know, I, I think when we talked the, the first time too, I mean, every one of us has some of these tendencies, like that's not, it's sure. not an abnormal or alien thing. Um, we all have, uh, I like to call them shadow and shine behaviors. Like there's lots of behaviors that depending on your, your mentality, uh, your, your MO can really shift. So, you know, as someone who has uh, ADHD, you know, I have, I'm very um, impulsive, but that also on the other side of that is, is creativity. That's where creativity comes from. You know, there's, um, you know, I was talking with a Navy SEAL friend of mine and, and he is, you know, just doggedly um, persistent, which persistence can also on the other side can come across as you don't care about anybody else and you just what you what want, what you want. There's plenty of labels for that. But so, so I think it's really important to understand that um, all of these uh, behaviors, and again, I'm not a, a psychiatrist or anything like that. So I'm sure that there are many, there's probably some level once you hit the scale on this, you maybe get, maybe there's an actual clinical diagnosis. But beyond that, we all have traits of these things that we, that we can probably uh, affect in ourselves if we go back to, as you talked a bit about self-worth, but then also what to look out for in other people, not only uh, to get what you want, because I think that's the very shallow definition of negotiation. People think about you're a negotiation expert. I mean, good negotiation, ideally everyone comes out whole, right? Like everyone gets what they want. You remove all the pettiness, you remove the anger, you remove the, the resentment, and you just really get, uh, you get what's what gives everyone value in the end. If I'm looking at a, at a narcissist, you know, it's really interesting. You say that, um, it can come from a, a point of pain. Probably I'm going to say in their youth, I guess at any point in their life though, where they, where it becomes survival of the fittest. So I would assume at the highest levels of that, um, it's, I guess you against the world. So in a lot of ways, when, in every way you operate in life, you're if you're operating sort of the highest levels of this, you're just operating as if everyone is against you in some way, and everything you, if if they're winning, you're losing. Is that how that works? Oh yeah, I mean they definitely think of the world in terms of black and white. You know, it's winners and losers, or you get or I don't. You know that sort of thing. I mean, it's very much that way. And and if you're not for them then they perceive you as being against them. And then you become public enemy number one because they want to take you down before you take them down and all that sort of thing. But, you know, and, and I agree with you. I do think it's a spectrum. I, I do think that, you know, we all have some traits of, I wouldn't call it narcissism. I mean, you know, I would just say we all want to feel seen, heard, and know that we matter. That's just part of being a human being. Right. Um, it's just a pathological state, though, where you get all the way to the end of the spectrum and you just feel like if, if somebody else has, then you can't. Uh, and so, you know, and they're very easily slighted. And, you know, but I, I mean, I agree with you that there's a certain amount of it that allows people to achieve. I mean, because, you know, hey, if you don't care about who you're stepping on right. on the way, <laughs> you know, it kind of helps you to a certain degree. But then, you know, ultimately, if you if they do feel like they're being closed in on, they do become very destructive and they, they can actually cause their own undoing. Um, I, I actually did a whole video breakdown on The Undoing, which was a, an HBO series with Hugh Grant. And that was such a great example of, of a narcissist who, when he was being closed in on, he started making mistakes and he was trying to go back to the well of the things that usually worked for him. And it, it, it caused his undoing, ultimately. So the, the thing, though, that I want to mention, because you were talking about negotiations and how everybody wants to be able to come out and have some value and all that sort of thing, which I agree with a hundred percent when you are dealing with two rational, normal people, a hundred percent. That's the way it is. But 
here's the flaw. The flaw when you are negotiating with a narcissist is that the reasonable person is thinking, well, what is it that they want? I Let's just settle this thing. Like, what is it that you want? I'll just give it to you so that we can all be done here. The problem with that thinking is that what they want is narcissistic supply. And so if they are getting it from jerking you around, making you scared, intimidated, controlling you, then that's what they want. That's what they're getting. And that's why they continue to move goalposts. Uh, that's why it's almost impossible to try to find a resolution with them because that's what they want. They don't want to end it. That's that's the huge flaw from the reasonable person's point of view. I, I dig that. I'm doing a documentary right now on uh, the tentative title of it is The Truth About Reading. And we're, I was interviewing a bunch of uh, behavioral scientists, uh, MDs, uh, all up in the Northeast last week. And it was really interesting having a, a conversation with this one behavioral scientist. And she was talking about uh, about children's behavior. And what you just said really reminded me of that. It's like, you know, we, we punish our child, right? So they, they do something and we give them a punishment. Yet we're perplexed when they continue to do the same, make the same choices and the same behavior. And what you have to realize at some point, not the, you might think a punishment is punitive, yet the child feels like it's better than the alternative than, than actually having to do what you want them to do. So it's really interesting thinking about, so it actually feeds them. So for instance, if, you know, if, if you say you do that one more time, you're going to have to go to your room. Well, some kids might like going to their room because they got toys in there, probably have a TV in there, like more than washing the dishes or doing something else. So we have to think about what is what are they really thinking and are we feeding the actual desired outcome they want? It just may really trigger that for me when you start talking about well, a narcissist. And, and, and even like to, to piggyback on what you just said, which I agree with everything you just said, remember that narcissists in some ways are really like they, they have arrested development. I mean, they're kind of like two-year-olds stuck in an adult body in a lot of ways. And so the other thing to, to add to what you were saying is that in some ways it's like kids just decide, well, any attention is better than no attention. Any attention is better than being insignificant. And, and so a lot of times I think they continue to act up because now they're getting attention. Now they're significant in some way. And, and, and I know it seems crazy, but I think that that's what happens with children sometimes too. It, it absolutely is because yeah, if uh, we were talking about a lot of kids will act out because there's, it's crazy what I'm learning right now. And it'll come out in the documentary about the science of reading and how there's, there's really not at the fault of teachers, but there's a lot of science showing that the, the systems and the methods we've been using for years just don't work on about 60% of kids. And so it's really interesting. Like some kids have learned like, Oh, I'll fake a stomach ache and I'll, or their stomach will hurt because they, they can't read well and they don't want to have to read out loud in front of the class some have learned that if they pitch a tantrum under the table not only will they get sent to the office they'll get a, a nice talking to from someone who really ideally cares about them and wants them to do better and they get they might be getting more poured into than they get in any other aspect of their life and they still although it'd be an embarrassing thing for you or i to think about doing that they still got the result they wanted, which was not having to read aloud in class. And so it's really interesting when you start talking about this sort of arrested development, a narcissist, you know, this way of operating that is, yeah, sort of, uh, yeah, sort of, I'm going to take my toys and go home. I mean, it's really sort of the, the highest level of that. You break down uh, in your book, Negotiate Like You Matter, I think a really unique system for negotiating. I'd love to break it down. So do you have an acronym for it, matter, letter by letter? Let's start with the M because I think, this is probably, I mean, it's the first one in the formula, but I would say I'd, I'd love your opinion for me just sort of getting into it for, uh, in the early stages, you wrote the book. It seems like this is really the foundation. This is a foundational pillar that if we screw this part up, all the other things will fall like a, a poorly built building. Yeah. I mean, to me, it's the most important one, which M is my value is defined by me. <clears throat> and the way I look at value is, um, there's a difference between internal value and external value. So I break it out that way. And the reason why I do that is because I think it gets collapsed a lot in the world. So your internal value is whole and complete and you are a human being and you're the only person who has ever existed 
existed that is exactly like you. There's no one else exactly like you. There never has been in history and there never will be again. And all of those good things, you're meant to be here. And, you know, if you, you can even think of it from a spiritual point of view, if, if that's your inclination, which it is mine, and that is that your soul chose to come here and, and, and be in this position, you know, all of those things, right? And so you have intrinsic value as a human being because you're here. Then, then there's the external value, which is your value in the world, which is, you know, if you're a software engineer, uh, you're going to get paid a certain range of salary depending on where you've worked and what your educational background is and what your experience is and what geographical area you're in and the size of the company you're working for. All of those things go into whatever your external value is as far as you can't go in and say, I want $5 million a year. You're never going to get that. You know, um, and, and if you're a software engineer and you go in and ask for 10 grand a year, that's probably crazy, too. You know, so um, there's going to be a range in the external value. But I always say my value is defined by me. You know, the, the flip side of that is you and you alone define your value. Um, and one of the things that I love the most is the idea of people will think what you tell them to think uh, and how you can spin that. And, and one of my favorite stories about that is actually, I was a practicing attorney for a long time. And then I decided, because I had a, I had the, I think I'd practiced eight years and then, but I had a, a little girl who she's now 18 and a freshman at UC Davis, but she was, you know, maybe five or six years old or something like that. And I decided I wanted to try my hand at uh, financial planning or something. So I went and I worked for Morgan Stanley and I had my series seven and 66. And, and then after two years, a friend of mine came along and said, Hey, I have, I'm moving to Tampa. Do you want my law practice? I have about a dozen clients. They weren't huge clients. It wasn't a huge practice, but it was like, here you go. I'm dropping my law practice in your lap. <clears throat> and I was like, okay, I think I should take this opportunity. So I, I take the opportunity. I start my law practice. At the time, I had a business coach. And I was like talking to her and I said, oh, my God, the people in this town are just going to think I'm a total flake. Like she was a lawyer and I was a financial advisor back to being a lawyer. Ugh, I, I was just like so lamenting that. And she said to me at that time, people will think what you tell them to think. And she said, you're going to tell them to think that you are more qualified than any other family law attorney because you're the only one that has a financial background. And family law cases are largely financial a lot of times, right? And I was like, oh, yeah, I could totally spin it that way. So that's how I kind of held myself out to the community. And I can't tell you how many people hired me because... I was the only family law attorney that had a financial background. And, and, but if I had gone around saying I'm a total flake, blah, 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 that's, that's what people would have thought, you know? So, you know, it was such a great lesson in, you know, people will think what you tell them to think, yeah. you know? So there's so much there. I mean, our own perception of herself obviously manifests from the inside out. I mean, all there's so many studies been done on that. I think what's really interesting there is also uh, a, a telling sign. The most successful people I know in the world at all levels of not only sports, but also business have coaches um, at all times. You might outgrow a coach in one area and need a different coach. But if, if you're not being, you know, and, and some people think uh, in order to have a coach, someone has to be better better at you than something. It's really interesting because if you look at like Tiger Woods' golf coach, like, I mean, he's probably better at him than something, obviously a mental game probably, but he's not a better golfer, right? And so it's just, you, you have to choose who you allow into your head. I will be very, very careful about that. But I love that fact. It's, it's um, and, and what I do with so many of my clients is, 
help them share their story because obviously that was a part of your story that you devalued. And so funny, the stories, most of us who aren't narcissists, by the way, or perhaps narcissists do too, they just overcompensate for it. You could probably say better than me, but we devalue our story because it's not that big of a deal because we lived it. Like if, if you won, you know, if you have a Grammy, I've got Emmys, but if you have a Grammy, I value that so much more because I don't have one, but I got Emmys and everyone else would probably like to have the Emmys. And so we don't think we're that big of a deal and our story's not that important because we lived it. Or we think like our brain goes to these negatives, like, oh, it's bad for this. But I try to help my clients understand that the story that, that you lived, and by the way, your story, incredible of, of going from divorced and uh, well, dropping out of school and then getting divorced and going back to law school and night school. I did one year in night school, law school, because I got a big job offer my last year of law school and it about killed me. Uh, so I can only imagine doing three years of night school, law school with raising kids and with, I mean, God bless you. But those stories are what make you the most uniquely suited person in the world to serve your ideal audience. So I love that example from you. And it's just a very poignant example of sharing your story because your story, your brand is your story. And that's the only thing that really does separate you. The other thing I think is super important here just to, to pull out of this is like in the end there, like, like the figuring out your own values and why you matter to yourself. I think foundational values is just something that, um, I would guess there was a lot more of it back in the 60s, 70s, 80s, even 90s. And I think a lot of that has been presented in a dogmatic way, which is not my favorite. But I think if we all have these wishy-washy, if we don't stand for anything, everyone's heard, if you don't stand for something, you can fall for anything. I think it's really important for all of us to really sort of discover and like look at like what, without judging what your values are, because you can totally do that, by the way. Anyone on the internet, if you're seeing this, you can you totally don't have to judge someone else's values to have your own. Um, I think it's very, you can just say what's important to me, what's valuable to me. And if, as long as I hold to this, then I could probably live a happy life because like back when I was doing a lot more branding work and a lot more positioning work, I had multiple offers from people in the adult entertainment industry. And I just said, doesn't matter the amount of money you're willing to pay me doesn't align with my foundational values. Just not for me. I also, you know, have this conversation with friends all the time. Like, Hey, you want to sell your business? Okay, great. What do you want to sell your business for? What's the number that would make you happy? 50 million. Okay, great. So let's just walk through the scenario. You're going to sell your business 50 million. You're going to give up 20% to a business broker. If, if maybe more, but let's just say 20%. Now you're down to 40 million. You're going to pay 35% in taxes. So now you're down to like 25 million. And here's the kicker. You're going to get paid like 7 million up front. And then you're going to have an earn out over the course of the next three years. And you've got to be an employee of this other company for the next three years. And once we start going down that road, it's really interesting how most people, if they're, I, there's a term my business partner uses that I love. He, he calls it being intellectually honest with yourself. He's like, if you could be intellectually honest with yourself, the question becomes, would you be happy being an employee for someone else who you have really no relationship with for three years? And it really comes down to the end of the day. My math isn't that great, but let's just say $25 million is what is your payout after tax. And you've already gotten 7 million. So for $18 million, are you willing to work for someone else for three years? And if people are not being intellectually honest with themselves, they're like, Oh, not that big of a deal, but I don't know about you, but like everyone I know who's ever been in that situation told the other side to go pound sand and just walked away within three to 12 months was like the most they could handle. And it's just really interesting when you look at, if you're really to look at what are your foundation of values, if you're, if one of your foundation of values is entrepreneurial freedom, the amount of money doesn't matter, or you better get it all up front so you can be free today. So I don't know, I don't know if you have a response to that, but it made me think of that. Oh, I, I think that's totally true. I mean, I always uh, joke, but I'm not really joking when I say that integrity is my love language. Um, because, you know, you, it does have to align with your own personal values and what it is that you want. But I have found, frankly, like, you know, I started like back when I started my own law firm years and years ago, I 
remember I came to this sort of crossroads because I was representing this woman who was divorcing a guy who was worth like a hundred million dollars and she had a prenuptial agreement and, but she had helped him. She was like working in the business and she'd really helped him have it grow. It was like worth 20 million when they got married and then she helped him grow it to a hundred million. And the prenup said she didn't get any appreciation, whether active or passive, it didn't matter. So she got paid to work in the business, but she didn't that she wasn't getting any of the upside. That was the way it goes. And so we go and we do the mediation and he agrees to pay her like an extra couple million just to like be nice. Okay. Didn't he didn't have to. And she was like, no, 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 I don't want to do this. I want to fight it. I want to fight it. Now, if she had fought the prenup, which was pretty good, basically, you know, there was very little argument about how we were going to set it aside or anything like that. And she wanted to fight it. And if she had fought it, we would have gone to trial. I would have made way more in fees, but she would have ended up having to potentially pay both sides fees because that's what the um, the prenup said. And I remember sitting there saying to myself, she's going to lose, you know, I'm going to make a lot more money, but she's going to lose. And this is not, I, my conscience can't do this. Right. So I, I just remember saying to myself, okay, God, universe, um, I'm going to do the right thing for the client here. And I'm just going to trust you're going to take care of me. And so I turned to her and I said, you're going to lose and you're going to pay way more money. And that is not my advice to you. Um, and I said, if you want to go forward with it, you can, but I'm going to have you sign a letter saying that I'm telling you that you're going to pay all these fees, blah, 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 CYA letter for me. Yep. Um, and she decided to take the extra couple mil and go, but she totally would have gone to trial and all of that. And so I just, I have always, that was the beginning for me where I've just always been like, do the right thing and the universe will take care of me. And it's never failed me yet. Uh, it, well, it's great advice. I mean, look, uh, they also say, you know, who you see on the way up is who you see on the way down. This is also true. And the more people who you, you know, I've been doing, uh, we talked a little bit about it. I've been doing a lot of study into sort of what makes people, you know, have impact and significance and all these things that are beyond success to me and, and, and far beyond monetization. Um, it can come with great monetization, but that's not the point. And I love the fact that when people are committed to, when people are committed to treating others right, despite the financial gain, it just always seems to work out. Or, you know what, at the very least, those people are happier. Like you might've made another $5 million, but if that was like the way you were constantly operating out of signed off on by the party and not what you thought the best, the best outcomes for your clients would be, you'd be miserable. I mean, at the end of the day, you would feel useless in a way. It was like, I keep telling them what not to do. They keep giving me more money, but like, that's not fulfilling, right? I mean, I think that's a big thing. Like, and again, back to, back to these foundational values, you know, I think being fulfilled at your career and certainly personally and professionally is like, I think probably a bigger deal than most people would put on the list. But I think if we would look at ourselves, honestly, I think there is a ton of that, that we all crave. We, we crave that fulfillment. We don't want to feel like we walk into a factory every day and put toothpaste caps on and we walk back the next day. It doesn't matter how much money you get paid. I think so few people realize that at the heights of success, um, the money is just a byproduct of mastery, enjoyment. I mean, you can do things that you're miserable about and make a lot of money, but I've ne- I just never seen that work out well. I don't know. That's a rant, but I've never seen it work out well. Yeah, I mean, I guess it, it works out for a while, you know. I mean, you look at the Bernie Madoffs of the world or people like that, you know. I mean, it works out for a while sometimes. But, you know, like I said, it, there's always sort of some undoing. There's some kind of something that happens. I mean, I, I, I just say integrity, without integrity, nothing works. And I love the fact that this it's the same word that, that contractors use when they look at the foundation of, like, the cement. Is the integrity of the cement, like, intact, you know? Otherwise, the whole house is going to fall apart. And I think it's the same way in life. I absolutely agree. Uh, we'll move on to A here in a second. But so M and matter, my value is defined by me. That's really important. When you define your own value, you control your world essentially. And it doesn't have to be based on outcomes. Like it can be based on 
what you can control, which I think is, is really important. You also have a, a quote in your book that our perceptions of ourselves are really just thoughts. And if you can change those thoughts, you can change your whole world. And I think that, I mean, this is, we've heard people way better than me say things like that. I mean, we've watched Tony Robbins make a life of that, right? And many others. But I think it's really important. Your perception of yourself is, is I would say everything. It's not everything, but it's very close because if you will just hold yourself accountable with integrity and, and go at life with the best you have to offer, a lot works out really well and you'll just be happier. And if you don't, we always see the people who I, I really hate the term fake it till you make it. Um, I really like, I, I like the term, I like the phrase be it until you become it. And so like you just act as if like, I'm, I'm not going to tell people, you know, that I'm a, billionaire when I'm not, you know, but like if do I, and not that that's what's important to me, but if I want to act, I want to start, I need to start thinking to make the decisions that someone in that status would make to me, having a fulfilling life is much more important than the money. So I often like yourself, I'm sure give up money, uh, for things that just don't work for me. Like having to do a bunch of work on weekends when I could be with the family or you know, whatever it is. Right. And so that internal valuation, I think is huge. Uh, let's move on to, uh, the A, yeah, so analyze research and create arguments and leverage. I mean, that's just really more like the stuff that people think of more so when they think of, of negotiating, which is research your side, research the other side, figure out what the return is going to be on your investment. Like, is it really worth it? Uh, you know, uh, what are your risks? Do your risk assessment. And, you know, I always say, like, take a look at the other side's arguments as if you are standing in their shoes. You know, a lot of people forget to do that right. because it's a very powerful thing when you get to a negotiation and you can, before they even bring up their arguments, say, I'm anticipating that you are going to argue this, you know, X, Y, and Z. And here's my response to that. You totally take the wind out of their sails. So I tell people to take a look at that and then also figure out what your leverage is. I mean, especially when you're dealing with a narcissist, leverage is everything. Um, and, and the leverage when you're dealing with a narcissist, by the way, is going to be figuring out how to ethically manipulate their, you know, what it is that's motivating them, which is supply. So, and, and, you know, for a narcissist, there's a hierarchy of supply, you know, the, the diamond level grade A supply is how they look to the world, how they look to the community, how they look to people they respect. If it's a court case, then it's definitely going to be the judge. It's going to be, you know, the lawyers, or maybe it's a custody evaluator or, or whoever's involved. They want to be the ones that look good. So by potentially threatening to expose them by showing what a liar they are, all that sort of thing. Um, that's going to be really good leverage. Um, and so taking a look at all of that um, is part of the, it, that's all part of the A. I love it. Well, so as I think we discussed before, I'm doing a, a documentary with Chris Voss of Never Split the Difference, obviously a great negotiator. And he talks about tactical empathy and that whole thing of, of putting yourself in the other person's shoes to see what it is they really want. And it's oftentimes... I'd say many times it's not even in direct conflict with what it is that you want. I mean, there's so many sides of an agreement. You know, I'm sure you've seen in divorce. I mean, some people, what they want is an, an apology as opposed to money, but it, it seems to come, you know, some somehow it all gets squashed into dollars and cents. When if we were to look at what is it someone really wants and sometimes even just asking, what do you really want out of this? If they can be honest, a narcissist makes that tougher. I'm sure. Cause they probably won't even admit they just want supply uh, and power. But I love the fact that no matter what you're negotiating, I would put it this way. If you, th if you're willing to negotiate it, you better be willing to do the research. And if you're not willing to do the research, you're just going to wing it. You probably shouldn't try to negotiate it. Would you agree or disagree with that? Oh, hundred percent. I mean, one of the things that I, you know, I don't really practice law that much anymore, but when I was practicing, one of the hugest mistakes that I would see people make is go into a mediation as if they're just, you know, showing up for coffee at Starbucks, right. you know, let's just have a conversation. You have to go into mediation as if you are prepared for trial because you want, you want to settle. 
at mediation if you can, because then it's a contract, which is not something that can be appealed. I mean, you can go to a court and get 100% of everything you want, and then guess what? The other side's probably going to appeal it. And now you're in for another 50 to 100 grand and another probably six months to a year of your life. Uh, and you could potentially lose again. I mean, you know, so there's like all that stuff, right? But if you can get somebody to settle in a negotiation, then you all sign an agreement. That's a contract. It's bound by contract law. It's, you know, much harder to set aside. Um, so, you know, I would totally agree with what you're saying there. I mean, when you show up to a negotiation, you should be fully prepared and have all the information that you can. That That's the big mistake that people make a lot of times is they haven't even done financial disclosure. They haven't done any kind of discovery in a whether it's a business litigation case or whatever it is, unless you have all of the facts in place, you might as well just, you know, stick your finger up in the air and see which way the wind is blowing because you you have no idea. Yeah, it brings me back to another similar analogy. It is certainly a negotiation when people are selling their businesses to, to equity funds or, you know, whatever. They always, they always set the closing for a Friday afternoon and then they always come up around two or three o'clock and they devalue the business by some number of millions. Cause by the time you're here, you're in millions and they've just banked on the fact that emotionally the person who is selling the business has already mentally spent the money. They've already mentally celebrated. They've already got the champagne in the bucket. Can't wait to crack it tonight at five o'clock. And if they like the, it'll be much more worth it for them to be done with it and get, 80% of the money and be able to crack that bottle of champagne on a Friday afternoon than it is to say, no, I'm not willing to do that. Why don't we talk again next week? And it's really interesting how this idea of going into negotiation, um, it's like, you should operate as if you're not going to negotiate in a lot of cases, like in the business, like you should just, you should keep growing the business. You should grow plan. You should plan your marketing meeting for next week. Even if you're exiting the business this Friday, just for that sort of act as if mentality so that you don't get strung up in these emotional sides of, uh, of pre-planned outcomes. Uh, what do you think about that? I mean, how often do people get caught up in these, in the emotional side of negotiation rather than just trying to stick with what actually matters? Well, I think that happens a lot. I mean, it, that kind of goes to the second T in my matter, which is to tackle the hard issue second, kind of start with areas where you're going to agree and then work out, you know, and, and the reason why I suggest to do that is because of exactly what you're saying, you know, people start buying into the whole situation. And then by the time you get to the harder issues, you're like, I don't want to kill the whole deal. Right. We've already gotten this far. We've already, you know, made all these strides. I've already decided, well, this is what's gonna I'm gonna be getting because we already agreed to this part. And if we don't come to an agreement on these harder issues, that means that potentially I'm losing the stuff that we already agreed to. And so, yeah, I totally agree agree with that. I mean, it's it's kind of like, you know. Um, not a nice move, though, like if somebody at the last second is going, oh, you know, now I'm devaluing it by another, you know, several million or whatever. And now, you know, if it were me, I'd be going, OK, well, now we have to have our get our forensic accountant involved. Right. We have to see, you know, why you're doing that. Is there a discount for marketability? Is there, you know, why why are you now suddenly devaluing it? And does that make even make any sense? You know, so there's usually some discretionary clauses in there that they are, you know, you can make a case for anything as we both know, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a dirty move. It just, I see it happen all the time because, and it makes sense the way they do it. I mean, they're, I mean, uh, a, a big fund, I mean, they work off percentages, right? I mean, so anywhere they can win on a percentage, they're going to try to win. And unfortunately there's way too many who that's, they're probably just going to put in their budget. They're going to win by another five to 10% at the closing table, if not more, uh, which I hate that strategy. Yeah, and then, then you end up having to do a, 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 you know, return on your investment. How much is it going to cost to go to trial? Uh, you know, is it going to be worth it? Do you, are you potentially, you know, because it becomes the battle of the experts then when you have a situation like that, you know, whose forensic accountant is going to be more believable, 
Yeah, yeah, and, and and certainly divorce and things probably a little bit different. In these cases, you have the ability to walk. Uh, you just it's hard emotionally to do so. And then also that comes down to as you talk about in the preparation side. I love the idea that before getting into any negotiation, not only should you do the homework on your side, their side, both arguments, but put together a best case scenario and a worst case scenario so that if this worst case, maybe in your worst case scenario, you say I'd still be totally happy with 70% of what they're offering, but I'm going to walk anything under that. And so if you know it's likely to happen, you're still happy with it. It's just really good to have a set of, again, sort of foundational values before you, before you even go into the negotiation. So you can make, you can make clear headed decisions. As you point out in your book, you know, there's this, this really interesting, uh, complexity of, of the hardest time in your life. One of the most clouded, like emotion times in your life, a divorce, you're expected to make some of those most sound financial judgment decisions you're ever going to have to make in your life. Like how do you, how do you separate those two and try to get people to make rational decisions in a very highly irrational time? Yeah, I call that the divorce paradox, you know, in the worst, most traumatic time of your life, you have to make the most critical decisions of your life about the things that mean the most to you, your children, your money, your business, your home, all of those things. And so I would say, um, you know, that's actually the E part of my thing, which is, you know, keep your emotions out of it. Um, And by doing, I mean, I, I think a lot of the emotions, though, in any kind of a negotiation is... The, the unknown factor, you know, we as humans, we like to predict our brain wants to know. And so when you're, when you're, whenever you're in a situation where you just don't know what the outcome is going to be and you don't know how to control it and all of that, that's when you start to go crazy. And especially if you're negotiating with somebody who knows you, I mean, whether it's, it, it could be divorce, but it could also even be like a business partner or somebody who knows you really well right. and they know what triggers you. They know what your weaknesses are. They are going to try to play them. And so by being prepared, the more prepared you are, the less likely it, it will be that you're triggered. And the more you can prepare ahead of time by, like you said, figuring out what your best and worst case scenarios are. I would even add to that one other thing that I've talked about with my clients for years, which is figure out what your choke point is. Um, I call it your choke point, your walk away point. I had a client one time who said your vomit point. I was like, okay, you know, um, but basically deciding ahead of time what that's going to be so that when you're in that moment of kind of higher uh, anxiety or your, you know, your, your cortisol levels are going up through the roof or whatever, and you're stressed with the whole thing. You, you can go back to, hey, I already decided that this was going to be my walk away point. So I've hit that now. So now I'm going to get up. And, and that's very helpful. Love that. And we, we went through your second T and the E. So the second T being tackle <clears throat> the hard issues. Second E, leave the emotion out of it. Let's go back to the first T, dress to a T, uh, then use power words and body language. How, how do we do that? Yeah. So um, I, that, that's kind of what you were talking about, the... Uh, tactical empathy, I kind of think of that more as like the rapport piece of it, right? You're basically building rapport. And and even if it's a narcissist, even if it's somebody you can't stand, you want to build a rapport because you want something out of them. If you didn't, you wouldn't be there having the conversation and you wouldn't be trying to negotiate with them. So, you know, smile, shake their hand, dress in something that's going to make you feel like a million bucks, like you feel powerful. There's entire books written on how clothing actually affects your psyche, you know? So, you know, we all know that if we're wearing something that is amazing and it makes us feel more powerful, it makes us feel more confident. And then that will exude through. I mean, you want to walk in like you own the place. Um, and that you're confident, not cocky, but confident, a quiet confidence, like a, I'm standing in my power kind of a confidence. Um, so that, that's what that is dressed to a T and then use powerful body language. I mean, there's definitely some things that you can do that make you appear more powerful <clears throat> as far as body language. Um, you know, not like being all like just closed in and scared, you know, being a little bit more open, um, you know, there's a 
a lot of like politicians and doctors and things that use like the steepling, which is like a powerful move that you can make, you know, just little things that you can do. Oprah uses this a lot where she's talking like that, you know, that's like more powerful. Um, and then just reading the other person's body language as well and understanding like there's certain things that they can do that if you look at it, I call it snuffing out the bluffing, you know, where you can kind of tell if, if they're actually going to go through with, with the agreements. Um, so that's what that T is. Yeah. And I think it's really important to hear that uh, there is no, you shouldn't have a preconceived notion on what, on, on what like powerful looking clothing is like, we've all seen that person who tried to dress in a suit that doesn't fit them. Right. You can tell they don't feel right in it. Like they may seem more powerful in a hoodie, for example, like if that's what they're comfortable in and that's their, their sort of comfort zone, you know, there are certain things that wouldn't, I wouldn't suggest probably for court in almost any scenario, but in just in, in general, I mean, do you see people, overly used cliched clothing or dress that you can tell they're not comfortable in? Do you see that much or not really? Uh, overly cliched? I don't know. I mean, I do think that, you know, there have been times where I've seen people not take it seriously, you know, and, and it really just kind of comes down to that. Like, think, be, be deliberate in your decisions on every piece of this thing, you know, even down to who, whose office you're going to have the negotiation at. Is it your turf or mine or something neutral? You know, obviously there's a lot of talk about home field advantage and things like that, but there are times when, when it's almost a power move to say, I'm coming to you. Um, I'm, I'm not, uh, intimidated by the fact that I can come to your place. Uh, and, and I talk in my book about how if you go to the other person's office, you can actually learn a lot more about them. You know, what what's the structure in their office? What kinds of things are important to them? Do you see pictures of family around? Is it pictures of themselves? You know, all that sort of thing. You know, you could even maybe find out what their political leanings are. Do they have a, you know, a big picture of Trump in their office or something like that? And then that'll tell you something about them. You know, I mean, just so sometimes even and, and which brings me to another point, which is sometimes even if you don't end up settling all of your issues, maybe you settle some, but maybe you settle none. But every time you have a conversation, you learn a lot about the person, you learn what's important to them, you learn uh, what what their tactics are going to be, what their arguments are, that sort of thing. So it's definitely always very helpful. I dig that. And then the final one here, the R, uh, is record all agreements in writing. Uh, you know, as an attorney, this is like uh, rule number one. But I even use this, you know, just even casually when I agree to something with someone I love. You know, I send a confirmation email and I tell them, you know, I'm going to, number one, I'm going to make sure that, or if you send it or I send it, let's both make sure that what we perceived was what was real. Like, so by putting it in writing and sending it over, make sure that, uh, what I thought you agreed to is what you agreed to. If not, feel free to give me feedback. And secondarily, like I forget a lot of things, like not intentionally, just, you know, you're doing a bunch of things. You forget minutia sometimes. And what's minutia to me could be really important to them. So I try to get it down just so I can always refer back to it and say, oh, okay, this is what you agreed to. This is what I agreed to. And I have never have a problem keeping to what I agreed to. But if I don't remember it, it can become, or if they don't remember something they agreed to that's important to me, it can become a huge point of contention. Yeah, I agree. And and I've actually had situations where I had a job one time when I was an associate attorney where I showed up, I had even sent a confirmatory letter saying, these are all the things you're going to do. You're going to pay for these bar dues. Da, 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 da. And I get there and they were like, no, we're not paying for that. I'm like, well, I had this letter over here and I remember them saying, well, yeah, you might've written that, but that's not what's going to happen. But like, you know, that's just so crazy when that happens. But you, you know, most of the time you, you, when you do that, the person will come back to you and say, no, that's not what we agreed to, or yes, it is. And then at least, even if they don't respond to you, you can say what I said, which was, Hey, you, this is what I wrote and you never said no. Right. So it's definitely, even if you don't get signatures on a formal contract with right. a notary and all that stuff, 
it's still better than nothing. It, I, I think I put it, I, I know I put in the book something like, uh, if, if it wasn't in writing, it never happened, signed your attorney. <laughs> <laughs> That's uh yep and and that can certainly happen. We've all been we've all been duped by that where it's, it it instantly becomes a he said she said oh I never I never said that. Well you know you you did when I negotiated to buy the car for you cash before I showed up here and all of a sudden now I've driven five hours with the cash and you got to make a decision you know how much is that time investment everything else worth and that that didn't happen to me but I know it's an example many people it has happened to because there are people out there who will literally prey on the fact that you are in a weaker position uh, and try to get everything they want. And so that's unfortunate, but you've got to be prepared for it. I mean, I'm sure you see it in many, many negotiations. And, and that's a lot about what you talk about in your books, right? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's all the time, but it doesn't mean that you, you can't get anywhere. I mean, one of the most famous ones that I highlight a lot in my book is the Mr. Rogers when he went to Congress. Are you familiar with this? Uh, I've heard the story a little bit, but not you tell it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he he goes to Congress in 1969 to try to get, um, I think it was 20 million to, for funding for PBS and for his show and all of that. Now, at the time, in 1969, I believe his show had only been on for like an, a, a year or something. It was in Pittsburgh. He was this young guy. He wasn't the Mr. Rogers at the time. Right. He was this guy who had a show on uh, some random, you know, station in Pittsburgh um, and for kids, of all things. I mean, you know, that was not the thing in, in those days. And he goes in there and he goes up against Senator Tom Pastore. Tom Pastore? I know it was Pastore was the last name. I don't remember if that's the first name. But the Senator Pastore is like super known to be very prickly and difficult and just liking to make people squirm and all that. And so he's, hello, Rogers, you got the floor. So that, that's how he starts, you know. And Mr. Rogers, in a space of like 15 minutes, turns this guy completely around and gets the money. And, and here he had no leverage whatsoever. What was his leverage? Nothing. He's just going there asking. He's got his hand out. That's what it is. Um, but he was able to persuade, not only persuade this guy to give him the money, but also at the end, he's like, I can't wait to watch it. And oh, my God, this sounds amazing, you know, in such a short period of time. And so it is possible. And, and what tactics did he use during that that you remember to get there? S several. But one of them is what we call embedded commands, which is a. Uh, neuro-linguistic programming technique. So it's, you know, um, I, I care very much about children as I know, and I'm sure you do mm -hmm. as well. Yeah. You know, things like that. Like, who's going to say, no, I hate kids. I mean, <laughs> you yeah. know, like, no, I don't care about kids. But yeah, political right? suicide if you do, right? So uh, right. very, very interesting. Well, all that and more, you can find them in Rebecca Zung's books, uh, Breaking Free, a step-by-step -step divorce guide for achieving emotional, physical, and spiritual freedom, and her latest book, Negotiate Like You Matter, The Surefire Method to Step Up and Win. Make sure you grab the books. Also, go check out her podcast and YouTube, Negotiate Your Best Life. Anything I forgot to mention, Rebecca? I just have a free gift, which is my free Crush My Negotiation prep worksheet, which people can get at winmynegotiation.com, which is 15 pages. It's basically an ebook, and it's totally free. And definitely check out my YouTube channel as well. Excellent. Well, check all that stuff out. Rebecca, thanks for joining us today. It's great to have you on. Thank you so much for having me. All right. All good. We'll see you guys next time on Now to Next with Nick Nanton. Take care. Thanks for tuning in to Now to Next. Make sure you like and subscribe and check out the next episodes.